Hello and welcome to Love is a Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, counterculture and sound systems whenever we get a chance to talk about sound systems. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm here as always with my good friend Jem Gilbert. Hi Jem. Hi Tim. How are you? How are you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we just say that we're both okay? Yeah, we're both fine. Okay, we're both fine. Good. All right. Um, excellent. So um, we are pressing ahead uh, this week. Actually, that was not an intended pun, but obviously it is a pun because we're going to be talking about the 12-inch single, um, which is uh, obviously a big topic for anyone doing a series on New York City 1975 to 76 for a podcast I wonder if anyone else has has done a a series on New York City 1975 to 76 I suspect probably not anyway um, so that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this week the 12 inch signal the 12 inch single uh, (laughs) arguably arguably the iconic kind of uh, product of the disco era um so uh, we're really looking forward to doing this. Uh, we, it's one of those episodes where we've got everything neatly planned so that we get through get through the material in an hour, which probably means that we won't manage to do that at all. So for the first time, we're actually like issuing a, a warning to listeners that uh, this might not all fit into one episode, but we're going to give it a go. And if I keep this intro going any longer, we won't have any chance of doing it <laughs> whatsoever. So, so Jem, why don't you get us going on, on this topic? Well, yeah, I think it's worth saying some things about the cultural musical climate leading up to the invention of the 12-inch, because I think usually with this sort of technological development, you can see things going on in the culture and in music that sort of anticipate it and indicate why there might be a desire for it. And the most obvious thing to say about the 12-inch single and the function that it fulfills is that it it allows DJs and dancers to have much longer tracks to dance to, to really kind of lose themselves in, to really develop the qualities of a particular song. And it really, you know, it becomes a normal expectation by the early 1980s. And it's an expectation that continues to this day, actually, that if a song or a track is being released for the purpose of DJs playing it to a dance floor, it will be longer than the standard historically conventional three and a half minute radio friendly seven inch pop song. And that's, that's a convention that gets established and it has really stayed in place like across multiple genres, like for decades. So obviously there's some real functionality there, you know, to the point where these days, you know, it's sort of, it'll be, you know, it's very unusual for people to be, somebody to be DJing like lot, loads of three minute tracks. I mean, people do it. But... So there's a fairly obvious functionality to it, you know, and, and to some extent, you know, that's, it emerges as a natural expression of this, you know, the, the general emergence of a culture that's organized around sustained social dancing using pre-recorded music. In some ways, I guess the thing that we're most interested in is probably well, why here? Then why does it emerge in this particular context? You know, why why in the context of New York disco does that get established? Because you can think of at least a couple of other examples of contemporaneous dance scenes in different parts of the world where you might have expected it to happen. You can look at the uh, reggae sound system dance culture. 
And as we'll see later in this show, or this pair of shows, if it ends up being two, uh, reggae does pick up on the 12-inch single very quickly after it gets established in the States. And you could also look at Northern Soul, a kind of British dance music phenomenon, which arguably, like as much as disco and more than reggae, sort of very quickly came to revolve around sort of marathon dance sessions. You know, the idea that people would go out and the same people would keep dancing for like 10, 12 hours at a time or sort of all weekend in some cases. And in some ways, it's quite weird that the 12-inch never became like a popular format on the Northern Soul scene, which survived in its initial form into the early 80s and then survived in a kind of residual form to this day. Because Northern Soul is sort of, all, you know, is the sort of home of the dance marathon. Like, I think in some sense more than, you know, more than disco. I mean, disco and the kind of downtown party scene revolves around, you know, it involves parties staying open for a very long time, like a lot of the time. And it involves people dancing, some people sort of dancing for as long as their trip lasts. But given that Northern Soul was all about these kind of marathons, it's kind of weird that 12 inches didn't take off there. So there's something going on in the culture, in the cultures that are feeding into kind of early disco and proto disco that is lending audiences and DJs and eventually producers a predisposition towards uh, wanting to produce really long songs. And if you think about well, what you know, what are long songs associated with? Like in the moment immediately before the emergence of the disco twelve inch, long songs uh, at that time they're associated. Well, they might long songs or long instrumental tracks. I mean, you might say they're associated with jazz because I mean, jazz really, as we've said before, jazz is basically the medium for which the LP is is developed. So they're sort of associated with jazz. I guess even sort of danceable, very danceable forms of jazz and things like Latin jazz that we've talked about on previous episodes uh, or had already established the idea of the kind of the long album cut, the relatively long album cut. I mean, some of those like tracks by, you know, people like um, Ray Barreto, we were playing in the previous series, you know, they were long, quite long album cuts. And, and that's also with African music as well, actually. And you know, into the seventies, you get really, really long tracks. Yeah, the standard format, like a high life album, by the mid seventies, is there's, there's basically like one, one or two tracks per side, like often like one track per side. So, and these are all cultures in which people going out dancing for really for sustained periods is like part of the is a big part of the practice. So that's all feeding into it. But in terms of what people are going to be listening to and going to be familiar with in New York at the beginning of the 70s, I guess the most obvious things to point to would be progressive rock to some extent and most obviously acid rock. It's acid, acid rock has really kind of, um, one of its features is that it's redefined the ways in which people relate to you know the, the music they're hearing at such that people are expecting to have these tracks, which are these quite mesmeric tracks with quite a lot of changing dynamic and tempo, uh, which go on for you know maybe 10, 12 minutes at a time. So that's clearly feeding into it. You could also point to somebody like Bob Dylan and say, at the moment when Dylan stops, Actually, Dylan is doing quite long tracks. He's quite long songs from quite early on, actually, these sort of story songs. But then when he moves over from doing these sort of explicit social protest songs to doing these uh, these sort of uh, weird exercises in symbolist poetry, 
uh, from the sort of mid sixties onwards. He starts, you know, he releases his, he features his very long tracks on his albums. And to some extent that length is sort of associated in the minds with a lot of audiences. It's associated with a sense of artistic seriousness and a sense of purpose, which I, I think does sort of anticipate a little bit, you know, the, the culture that will emerge around the, you know, the dance remix. Because there is, there is a sense, I think, right from the beginning, that there's a certain artistic seriousness about the dance mix, a certain kind of artistic ambition, which uh, is different from just like the kind of, um, the sort of uh, assembly line pop of, of the sixties. Of the and it's also, in, it's also interesting to think about the fact that I think I've mentioned this before on the show, but the, the absence of a format like the 12 inch single, it does really affect the, the commercial possibilities of releasing certain kinds of music say in the late sixties. So, I mean, my favorite example of that is Pink Floyd. You know, when Pink Floyd first started, what they were known for doing was playing like very, very long instrumental, psychedelic instrumental jams in at the UFO Club in London, the kind of London's psychedelic club. And that's what they were known for. That was what they did. Like they didn't have songs really. But when they got picked up, when they got signed, you know, the record company said, well, you have to release songs. You know, you can't, we can't, there's no way of releasing this stuff that you can't get it played on the radio. And so Sid Barrett starts writing these sort of really silly, sort of you know, quite silly sounding. I mean, some of them are really lovable, but they're sort of silly sound, silly sort of ditties, basically. And to some extent, that whole that kind of flower power psychedelic pop format in this British iteration is basically invented out of the necessity to produce some some sort of commercial version of or some commercial companion to what they're doing in the clubs and i mean one reason those the lyrics are so kind of childlike and silly on most of the songs on pink Floyd's first album and their early singles like cmle plays because they were written very tongue-in-cheek because they they didn't really take it seriously and, and they saw themselves as slightly mocking the whole idea of sort of commercial pop for people in their early teens and notoriously when they toured on the back in the country on the back of those singles like people hate absolutely hated like hearing them play these extended jams um but of course it, yeah if the 12 inch single had existed as a commercial format at that time that's what they'd have been doing they'd have released you know their their signature instrumental in, instead of overdrive they'd have released it on a 12 inch so it's kind of interesting to think that well there, there are sort of reasons why people might want this as a format before it emerges You know, the LP itself is obviously the long playing LP. It's because, you know, people wanted it, you know, listeners and, and musicians wanted a format that could stretch out and everything you say about, you know, jazz and also, you know, very obviously orchestral music, uh, which is the ultimate, you know, denoter of seriousness in music, you know, historically at least. Uh, and also rock increasingly during the 60s. It's all, you know, you're absolutely right in the way that it's, it stretches out, it stretches out music obviously it becomes more it becomes it does become more serious but i think there's you know on some sort of basic level there's just more music you know it's not it's it's obviously defying the kind of you know the pop format um that you know was so heavily critiqued by you know adorno for just turning music into yet yet another commercial product that follows a formula and is aimed at making money so the album is partly in defiance it's partly about kind of surpassing that artistically 
and this is often serious but it doesn't the music doesn't have to be kind of serious in intent necessarily but you do get you will you definitely will get more music probably i mean i think we'll we may come back to this but maybe we won't uh so it's also worth kind of mentioning probably that the um following the introduction of the long playing format the lp the whole of the music industry becomes kind of organized commercially around the double the format of the seven inch and, and the album and this the the strategy becomes that the money as far as i'm aware uh, i'm not a, you know this isn't the kind of the, the side of things that i know the most about but as far as i'm aware that uh, the the record companies generally approach the album as the as the format um or the you know that would make that would make money that was the main intention and you you charge more for the actual album and that the part of the production cycle uh, is generally to be is to generally release a number of seven inch singles by the time michael jackson came out with thriller for example i think almost every i can't remember if there's like 11 tracks on the album or 12 tracks on the album but i think that eventually like seven of them were released as singles or something which was kind of pretty unheard of at the time that's obviously we're skipping forwards a bit there but to kind of rewind yeah the idea was that the you know the best singles the best tracks the best songs on an album would be released as singles the consumer would buy those and that would then encourage them to buy the album which leads them to rebuy the records they've already got as singles they're buying the same song twice and sometimes only to discover that indeed the seven-inch singles that have already been released were the, were the best singles. And that sometimes, and even frequently, the rest of the music on an, on an album would be considered filler or fodder, not as good as the actual kind of the best songs, really. But this was how the industry was functioning. Then, of course, you would, could, could easily also get an album recorded in which all of the music is great or all of the, you know, the Beatles were ostensibly one of the you know first bands anyway to kind of do this uh, with Sgt Peppers that you know there's supposedly a kind of you know a journey that extends throughout the the entire album so this was one of the one of the points when you know the rock pop terrain was becoming a, a little bit more serious but um so yeah, and was, also they didn't it was a big status thing for the Beatles where they didn't release singles off the albums in in, in that period in the late 60s right so right right okay. the big single that's contemporaneous with Sgt Pepper is Penny Lane Strawberry Fields which is released as a double A side and not neither of the tracks on the album do you know why do you know what do you know why they did this is it was it kind of in defiance of the it was that sort of anti it was a status thing it was a thing that's showing you didn't that your singles were so good I can't remember if I said this right a minute ago now. It was the when it was the same year as Sgt. Pepper's, like 67, that they were also released Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields as like a double A side. So it was a it was a huge gesture. Like two classic tracks get released and they're not even on the albums. And it was a way, you know, the statement was we think the album is so good it doesn't need these singles on it. And we think the singles are so good, you know, they they'll stand on their in their own right. But then it be, then it becomes a real thing in the seventies for the big rock bands that aspire to kind of artistic statement. So Led Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd both didn't release any singles for like most of the seventies. And it was partly because I think that there was generally speaking an understanding that the 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 single the seven inch format sounded at its best when the length of the recording lasted for I think it's something like three and a half minutes. Uh, and by the time you're going to get to five minutes, you're into some serious deterioration. So for any band that wants to put um, a high value on the actual recording sounding good, 
they wouldn't want to put a long record on a single and yet many of the bands that you know you're referring to that we're talking about are suddenly interested in doing kind of you know including Led Zeppelin uh, some of the Beatles obviously you know a day in the life and the rest of it they want to be recording music that kind of goes far you know goes way beyond that three and a half minute ideal format for the seven inch so yeah, it could be anti. It could be a bit of an artistic statement, which is the most likely. It could have also been a somewhat anti-commercial statement. With the Beatles, I suspect that you know it's about usually when the single is released, it's released before the album. Um, so that's the strategy for the company to kind of double up the money effectively and to kind of pre-sell the album by re- releasing good good singles. I can't. I don't know. I, I don't remember. Yeah, no, it was. They were very explicit. It was an anti-commercial thing. I mean, it was partly because they didn't need to be commercial. They were the Beatles, so anything they released would sell. So it was easy for them not to, you know, not to release singles as adverts for an album, but only as artistic statements in their own right. So, and that was absolutely how they saw it. So yeah, it was it was anti-commercial, but you know, it was it's easy to be anti-commercial when you're the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they, you know, given that we 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 you know love is the message is a show about music the dance floor and counterculture we should also and i think you've, you've more or less said this already but to just just to draw it out a little bit more a little bit more is that you know it was a it was a, arguably a countercultural gesture and music was to kind of be making music that broke boundaries everything was about kind of trying to break with existing formats um so if the existing format of the expected kind of rock pop single was going to be or soul funk you know r&b all of these formats they were kind of geared up around the the seven inch single and then the album so to kind of go beyond that was to also just be kind of going on a journey that is kind of departs from the norm um i think we should i mean we're going to come back to what you were about to start before but i just think there's a couple more things to say and we should listen to a, a little bit of music so i'm going to Propose that we listen to uh, Rare Earth Get Ready. So yeah, this is one example of a record that you know was very, very popular with Francis Grasso at the Sanctuary. David, uh, it came out in 1969, by the way, and it lasts for 21 minutes 30 seconds. I'm pretty sure it's the entirety of, of a side of the album that I think is an eponymous album. I mean, I remember Francis would sort of say that you know this was apart from anything else, long records were good because DJs used to have to work really, really hard when they started out. They were mainly playing singles that was this you know that was the main format that was kind of available for the kind of songs that you know dance crowds were that were beginning to form were expecting to hear and if you're going if you're playing for a you know a whole whole night and you've only got seven in singles you you know you're gonna you're not gonna have much of a chance to go to the to the bathroom at any point so francis apart from a really enjoying rare earth get ready kind of took this as an opportunity to go and have a toilet break (laughs) bathroom break (laughs) Um, so that was always quite amusing, but so, so yeah, but it's uh, it was a big record for Francis. It was a big record for David uh, when the loft started uh, in ninety, of course, in uh, early nineteen seventy. Uh, figures like Steve DeQuisto, Michael Capello, all the DJs really played this record, and it was so. It was also because it was ta- you, were, you were talking about like what's going on in the culture. We kind of have touched on counterculture. 
um, you know, LSD was obviously a very big part of this culture. And, you know, if you're on LSD, that, you know, it's, you've got sort of 10 hours ahead of you potentially. But also, as we've talked in, uh, in the earlier shows, and as our listeners uh, probably know very well, you know, you, perception of the world around you shifts when you're when you're taking some LSD. So, you know, time stretches out, space kind of, you know, also, you know, assumes different forms. Um, and you can kind of get more lost into whatever it is that's going on in your life, your attention to the detail, the specificity, even the, the beauty of, of that particular experience, whether it's working and walking in nature or listening to music kind of becomes more, it becomes intensified or sometimes people say it's sort of amplified. So this was also the spirit of the times, not only within the kind of wider music community, but also on people who are beginning to kind of, approach the dance floor with a countercultural perspective. So these long records did, you know, work particularly well with these crowds. And it was at the beginning of 1970s, we talked about in an earlier show, we won't go through it again now, but Francis Grasso at the Sanctuary, David of Mancuso, of course, of the Loft, did start to begin this, what I've always not very beautifully called the beginnings of contemporary DJ culture, this moment where the, D, the DJ and the crowd enter into this conversation. And once that is established, the flow can last for a very long time. Previously, DJs and, and dancers weren't in, entering into that kind of communication. So this be began in 1970, and it was David, I just wanted to slip in um, before we start to talk about the actual 12-inch single format. David was the did emerge as the DJ, or as he preferred to be called, musical host, who really did develop a reputation for for introducing long records in which you know the, the peep dancers could really get lost in the in the music, in particular because David had created such a refined environment for listening, including this very developed sound system, a very comfortable room with wooden floors and good acoustics and all all the rest of it. Just to, again, have a quick musical interlude. Um, I'm pretty sure that David also played Eddie Palmieri because you were mentioning jazz just before German. Eddie Palmieri was one of these kind of pioneers within Latin jazz. Eddie Palmi's Una Dia Bonito, uh, which is on the album The Sun, S-U-N, of Latin music, uh, which came out in 1974. <laughs> Okay, so the actual actual twelve inch singles. I mean, tri records released twelve inch records released with just one track on a side. They start to be experimented with as a novelty release by some record companies around nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. I think Ampex Records is supposed to have released the very first one uh, by the jazz guitarist Buddy Fight in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, and it was advertised as the world's first 12-inch single, but as I understand it, it just it was just it was pressed at 33, and um, it had a big runoff area. So, and it was just a sort of novelty. There, there was no obvious reason for anybody to want it. <laughs> like it, they they had the idea you could press one, put one track on each side of a 12-inch and play it at the speed of an LP, but. Apparently, it was that format was used a few times by Shelter Records in the early seventies. And one example of that is uh, the American singer Leon Russell, 
released an album called Leon Russell and the Shelter People Shelter People in 71 and he also released an album called Carney and they the record company released a single a 12 inch that had a couple of a track a track from each of those albums and I think it, I think it was just a test pressing they sent out to radio stations but that's often cited as one of the first 12 inch singles to get released you know apart from that previous one that was only sold in a couple of record shops Uh, I don't think this one was sold in record shops at all. It just went to radio stations. But you can sort of see a reason for that because the most famous track from that is Leon Russell's cover cover of It's a Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, a Bob Dylan song. It'd be worth hearing a bit of that because I think think it's the best cover of It's a Hard Rain, actually. Let's hear a bit of that. Leon Russell, It's a Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Really widely, I mean, there's a whole industry just sort of studying Dylan covers and Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is one of the most covered Dylan songs. Uh, But they're surprisingly disappointing, most covered, in my opinion, including the famous Brian Ferry cover. So I really like that one. It's got a nice uh, movement to it. And kind of, you know, I think it does find what what makes the song compelling and works with it. So it's worth saying that it's just worth saying that is a five minute record, or maybe did you already say that? Yeah, yeah so that's right. Of, it yeah. wouldn't feel, yeah, would, yeah, 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 five minute track. So there's a reason to release it because you can't get, you can't, you'd be, it's hard to fit that on a seven inch, and you can fit it on a seven inch, but it's not going to sound as good. Um, so there is some reason for releasing it, and apparently Shelter released a, 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 a cup, two or three of these um, promotional. Uh, promotional 12-inch singles for radio stations in 71, 72. But it didn't really take off as a, as a commercial format under the impetus of those releases. It wouldn't really take off as a format until the sort of accidental invention of the of the 12-inch single as we know it properly by mm. Tom Moulton. So I think you should talk sure. about that. Yeah. You're, World expert. On that <laughs> well, that was twenty years ago. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know who's emerged since yeah. to uh, to uh, take my place, but uh, I'm easy. Whatever. Uh, yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah. Tom Alton's a key figure, clearly, uh, in terms of the rise of remix culture uh, and also the the introduction of the twelve inch single. I mean, just to, but there is a bit of background to this, as as there almost always seems to be. And of course, the background is that DJs, uh, you know, in addition to searching out for long records that their dancers would appreciate because of the kind of environment in which they're dancing, and they were going to have a they were going to have a long night dancing a lot ahead of them. They would like they could kind of particularly enjoy getting lost in in you know the musical journey, which included long records. I mean, just just to kind of re- actually make a, a point a little bit more clearly, if you if you listen to kind of you know records like Eddie Kendrick's "Girl, You Need a Saint," "Change Your Mind," or uh, "War City, Country City," they almost are like a mi- you know a microcosmic version of an entire, for want of a better term, DJ set. They're a journey within themselves. They have these kind of repeated kind of crescendos, for example. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so DJs were you know from the, pretty much the early seventies onwards. Were uh, taking 
two records, quite often for you know forty-five singles, seven-inch singles, but not all, not always. And we're doing some live mixes in order to extend those records. Uh, this was kind of this was a, a kind of popular technique to kind of make records longer. This is the beginning of DJ mixing. Um, I forget the year. I have a feeling it's nineteen seventy-four. Ultra high frequency uh, released "Where" on the right track and on the B side. Uh, there was a, the instrumental mix, which I think was one one of, if not the first time that this was done. And it was Mel Sharon, who was then working at Scepter Records, who would later go on to co-found West End Records and become a significant figure in the in the disco kind of party scene. Um, Mel Sharon oversaw this at Scepter, and the idea with this was indeed that you have the regular vocal seven inch on on the a side and the instrumental on the b side means if djs buy two copies they can mix between the two so already as a kind of form of like handicraft of you know improvised uh, artistry and musicianship djs are kind of thinking of ways of of of, of extending records um, another you know uh, precedent to the emergence of the 12 inch is the fact that djs would start to take their own edits of tracks down to some recording studios uh, in order to create their their own acetate mixes. Uh, And the first one of these was called Angel Sound and was run by a guy called Sandy Sandoval. I interviewed Sandy, tracked him down, interviewed him for a long set of liner notes for some Walter Gibbons compilations that came out a, a number of years ago. And Sandy was just, you know, would just tell me how from basically 1971 which is pretty early onwards, but also especially from 1972, DJs were going down there and were cutting cutting their own their own edits that they would then be able to play exclusively at their parties. And more famously, another studio called Sunshine Sound started to uh, operate, and DJs, including um, Walter Gibbons and Francois Kavorkin, would would often t- take their edits there. And uh, Pete should mention has been reissuing uh, a lot of these sunshine sound edits on bandcamp on on the, on the sunshine sound label at bandcamp which is kind of which is yeah, a really yeah, fantastic yeah. kind of piece of archival work and a lot of the edits are really they sound really great still and they're really fascinating documents as well so so there's all of this background um which I think is relevant. And into this steps Tom Moulton, who is a somewhat improbable kind of uh, person to become such a key figure within the world of, um, you know, dancing and, um, you know, 12-inch singles and and all the rest of it. And I say that because Tom notoriously really uh, didn't like going out. Uh, he didn't particularly like going out dancing. Uh, he was very anti the consumption of drugs. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he becomes kind of one of the figures who's kind of uh, becomes mostly most closely associated with the culture by developing this new new approach to kind of effectively a new approach to mixing records. I mean, when we get around to talking about Walter Gibbons, his sort of contemporary DJ producer in the downtown scene, it becomes it becomes easier to get your head around the fact that Moulton is this sort of clean living <laughs> guy who doesn't like drugs. Because by, I mean, I love Tom Moulton mixes. I play yeah, yeah. a lot of them, but compared to Walter Gibbons, like he's really, it's very normy. 
it's very obvious what the kind of musical, you know, what the body's yes. going for yes. with the effects. And, and, you know, it's basically, it's all about basically reinforcing the dramatic qualities of a song structure. It's not, like, Walter Gibbons is like, is, is much more of an avant-gardist and he's much more druggy. Very much so. Walter is very, uh, yeah, off-centre and alternative and explorative and often quite strange and radical. And yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to all of this, but it's a good point. So Tom was, uh, I mean, the thing that's one of the things that really does stand out about Tom, and uh, as, you know, and Tom has been has dedicated his life to to music, and he's uh, and he was particularly passionate about black music from a very young age. He was working in the music business, um, but um, started to find that it was overly political, uh, and in the end, quit the music industry at the very end of 1969. Uh, so you know, just in time for the emergence, the kind of full throttle emergence of this culture in the 1970s and at that point started to kind of basically work as a model for an agency called bookings international if anyone's seen a photo of tom Moulton, he's a extremely handsome man so tom selleck uh, was like isn't he yeah that sort of tom selleck look so yeah he was it was at bookings international there was a you know one of the other models at the agency was called john white John White was also the owner of the Botel, which is this kind of hotel uh, complex uh, located in Fire Island Pines, which is a popular holiday destination in particular for, for gay men. I suppose we should really say largely white gay men, if not exclusively white gay men who were living, well, all over, but in particular in, in, in New York City. When they after they met, it was the it was John White suggested um, that um, oh sorry the owner of the agency suggested to Tom that he goes to visit the hotel, um, um, and um, Tom's reaction was actually to say, "I heard about Fire Island; it's just a haven of sin and drugs." Um, but he went out all the same, and he went to this thing that had become it was an emerging tradition, which was called tea dance, which was kind of on the Sunday Sunday afternoon. Uh, this 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 crowd of of gay men would get together and they would have tea afternoon tea and there'd be a bit of a kind of little disco party going on a bit of a dance party and Tom went there and and as he put it to me in in uh, one of in these in long interview I conducted with him he said I was amazed that all of these white people were dancing to black music the rose tinted glasses came out and I thought oh isn't this wonderful the music is bringing everybody together. I mean, Tom ended up becoming a somewhat cynical figure, I suppose, in in terms of in politics and the rest of it. But uh, he was he always thought that music had the possibility of, of you know, br- indeed bringing people together. Um, and he went to this tea dance, but he was also said he was very frustrated because whoever was putting on the records didn't really understand the idea of a flow, how to put the music together. Tom said it sounded terrible. So he came up with the idea of of compiling a tape of of music uh, that would be without breaks and would last for the length of a, I guess, the half a side of a ninety minute cassette, so sort of forty five minutes. Uh, and he spent eighty hours making this forty five minute tape, uh, gave it to the the owner, um, and uh, apparently um, it didn't get played. But somehow, or other, the tape got passed on to the owner of a place called the Sandpiper, which was one of the the emerging kind of discotheques on on the Fire Island, owned by Ron Malcolm. And Ron Malcolm put it on, and uh, somehow or other, it, this tape was a, a huge kind of success that particular night. You, you may have the same viewpoint, but generally speaking, yeah, I'm certainly very clear that you can't really put on a tape at a party and expect it to necessarily work. Well, I did I mean, do for years. Someone, like house parties. I know, I know, I know, I know. 
I know, I know. I wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted, I wanted so, to be able to uh, dance to it. That's why it was all fine. Yeah, was well, that's a very good. That's that's a that's a very good argument, I suppose. Uh, not to always be. Yeah. We, well, in the end, indeed, the solution was for both of us to do that together. So half the time you're putting on music, and half the time you're dancing. Anyway, Tom was getting into already the idea of pulling putting records together and using kind of very basic kind of, you know, technolo- technological kind of tricks in order to kind of cr- create, a, a you know, extended an extended music um, for people to dance to. And in fact, in the end, the tapes didn't, you know, weren't. I mean, Tom's line was the tapes were, you know, technically more accomplished than the DJ could manage. But, you know, in the end, it didn't become a consistent source of employment for him to be making these tapes um, because you needed a DJ. Uh, I mean, the other thing to mention is that it's a bit of an aside, but there's quite often Tom Moulton is described as being a DJ. And it was through his DJing, supposedly, that he got into kind of this this practice of remixing and this is this is just kind of is an inaccuracy that is worth kind of drawing some attention to tom Walton was never a dj he did make these tapes uh, but he'll you know not only was he not a dj he didn't particularly like going out dancing either but he loved this music uh he loved it more than i think any, you know anything else in the world maybe um and it was around about 1975 the end of 1975 that uh, mel sharon again who was still at scepter records uh, gave tom the opportunity to start putting some of his ideas in practice about this kind of desire to kind of you know extend the the length of the record or to find ways to improve the flow of the music through the course of an evening because that was kind of this was kind of tom's emerging idea the record that Tom first got to do this on, uh, some of the, some of these records do end up overlapping a little bit, but um, is a record by Don Downing called Dream World. So why don't we have a quick listen to that? No, no. Yeah, so what um, Tom Tom told me, you know, of, of this recording, he said, Dreamworld started out in one key and modulated up. There was no way I could have extended the record by looping it back to the beginning. It would have sounded horrible. So at the end of the record, I took out the strings, horns and guitar, and I brought up the congas and the bass, and I let the groove run, and then I took it back to the original modulation. So effectively, uh, this, 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 you know, this mix... Which it might be, I don't know, it's hard to drill these things down sometimes, but it might be the first time that someone who's kind of, you know, working in effectively an engineering mixer, remixer capacity is kind of deliberately extending a record. It's not just pressing up an, a record that happens to be a long record on a, on a 12 in, on, on an, as, as an extended record. Uh, he's deliberately extending it for, for kind of, for, for dancing to and and the tom's technique for kind of doing this was to introduce a break that became the bridge for the kind of him to kind of uh extend extend the record but one thing that's important to note about this well this this is these this is at least one of the main beginnings of remix culture certainly 
for Tom. Um, but this was uh, this was pressed up on a seven inch single. That we still didn't have the twelve inch single at this point. Tune in, turn on, get down. Love is the message. Hi, this is Jem, and on behalf of my co-host Tim and producer Matt, I'd really like to thank you for your attention and for supporting the show. We hope you're enjoying it. We're really proud of it. We think it's a completely unique media product and a unique intellectual endeavour. We do really rely on the support of our patrons to make it possible. So if you possibly can, we'd really be grateful if you would visit our Patreon page and consider making a regular donation, in return for which, of course, you get plenty of regular exclusive content. But even if you can't support us in that way, we really do thank you for your support and attention, and we hope you are enjoying the show. More or less around the same time, what could be called, you know, the first 12-inch dance single, if you like, occurred, and, um, and, it, and it revolved around, uh, somewhat confusingly, a record not by Don Downing, but by an artist called Al Downing. Uh, and this is a record called I'll Be Holding On, and it's a 5 minute 35 disco mix, and uh, it was intended uh, to be released, as with the Don Downing, as a 7-inch single, but at the time, Tom Walton was working um, with an engineer called Jose Rodriguez. Uh, and Jose had run out of seven-inch blanks uh, when they were cutting the reference disc for this track, Al Downing, I'll Be Holding On. And at that point, uh, Jose Rodriguez suggested that they put the material uh, onto a 12-inch blank instead. And Tom's response was to say, well, that's a bit, that's a bit of a shame. That's, that's a waste. The single only uses up a little... Uh, a little bit of the space of the 12 inch and uh, Jose Rodriguez replied well we'll just open it up and spread out the the grooves and this may have happened in other studios in other parts of the world previously but at least uh, there and then uh, in 1974 Tom remembers that uh, as I said I almost died because the level was so loud so this is coming to the point that you were almost introducing a little earlier on, Gem, which is the uh, is is the is a key point, which is if you take if you spread out the gro- the grooves of a seven inch single and you put it onto a twelve inch uh, disc, uh, there's going to be a lot more space between the grooves and it's going to sound uh, louder and hotter. Well, what, what, what I'm never sure about with that uh, story, was it running at 33 or 45? This, this is a good question, and I don't even know. And that's a separate... I think then there's a separate thing that David really got into, which is the belief that if it was running at 45, it would sound even better than if well, it was that is, I mean, that's not. Just, I mean, that's not just David. It's, a, a gener- it's generally believed that if you... You want wide grooves, but running at 45 gets the best possible sound. So there are like, you know, I've got um, I've got a very special super-duper audiophile version of the Grateful Dead's album, American Beauty, which the whole thing runs at 45, and it's like over two records. And generally speaking, when we, like when we're releasing records with a 
the Beauty and the Beat label. It, you know, it's generally believed that the um of the uh, a twelve inch a twelve yeah a twelve inch running at forty five is like the best sound you can get for a track. But I think yeah we're we're, we're talking about a process by which people come to that conclusion. It's not like immediately established at the the time we're talking about. But David and I think as you say, David is one of the people who gets really into that concept quite early. Yeah, I mean, I think the the key development in my mind, but I'm not, I don't have, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have great engineering kind of knowledge. The key development is the spreading out of the groups yes. more than whether it's played at 33 or 45. That seems to be, yeah, I think that's reasonably clear. But um, there is, you're, you're right, there is some further debate where a number of people come to, came to believe that if it's recorded at 45, it definitely sounds better. I mean, there is something puzzling about that because then there's a long history of 12-inch mixes coming out. Uh, and it's quite regular for many of them for uh, to be recorded at 33 and not because they are of such a, you know, such a long length that they couldn't be played at for, Well, that's at a cost thing. It's more expensive to press a side at 45 than 33. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. All right. Um, anyway, the immediate effect of of hearing this this space well, essentially because it was going to be it was meant to be pressed on a seven inch, but it was a five minute thirty five disco mix already. It get got pressed up on this twelve inch reference disc. It sounded louder, and Tom had by this point already become quite friendly with um, for, you know people Steve DeQuisto, Walter Gibbons, Bobby Guttadaro, known as Bobby DJ, Richie Kazar, and David Rodriguez. Uh, and he said they they would come over to Tom's apartment every Friday to hear whatever uh, he was he was uh, working on. I mean, DJs, as, as we've said before, were pretty hungry for new material uh, during this era. The record companies weren't, you know, weren't really aware of their existence and trying to give them music to play. So they were gathering at Tom's Tom's place, uh, and he said he played them the twelve inch, and they all loved it. They they could hear the the kind of the the improved sound quality of the of it being pressed up on a 12 inch you know immediately that record was eventually pressed up um it was released by chess uh, towards the end of 1975 and i think it was actually pressed up in the end on a seven inch single i don't think you can get a 12 inch i'm sure i'm pretty sure it didn't ever come out as a 12 inch kind of s- single um at that point um, but the but the the revelation had happened, if you like. Um, I mean, the other thing to mention is that it didn't, you know, whatever Tom was doing, he didn't especially extend it because it was going to be on the twelve inch format. Although it happened to be somewhat extended, but he he thought it was going to be on the seven inch uh, as a seven. It was re- would be released as a seven inch single, and that's what came to pass. I mean, then around this period, we have the, there's just a, this flurry of. Um, other activity that kind of edges us closer and closer to what will eventually become the kind of first 12-inch single. One record which we've mentioned a few times already uh, is Glory Again is Never Can Say Goodbye. Uh, And it's the album that is of interest to us here because Tom mixed that album and he mixed it so that the the three singles on the A-side, I believe, basically played without any pause between them. So that sort of became like a kind of mixed record, although it wasn't really kind of, it wasn't as if the individual singles on that side, the individual tracks on the album side were kind of given any special treatment, but they were joined together. 
there was then a kind of this flurry of you know extended recordings started to come out because companies were becoming increasingly aware this is a we're into 1975 here just to remind ourselves uh it was in the summer of 74 that george mccray's rock your baby and the hughes corporation rock your boat were successive number one hit singles and they both kind of you know sounded a bit like this new new kind of merge sound called disco so it's from the summer of 74 in particular that the music industry started to kind of prick its ears up a bit so the possibility of this being kind of something that they could kind of get into and and market uh with some commercial success yeah, so in I mean, May 1975, I mean, this is maybe too much detail, I don't know, but Atlantic Records uh, released DJ only, uh, a DJ-only disco disc series that included Barabbas track called Mad Love and Hot Chocolate track called Disco Queen. Um, and then, you know, just a, a short while later, Atlantic also uh, released sort of special versions of um, Ease On Down The Road by Consumer Report, Um and Tornado from uh, the musical recording of The Wiz. So these were, again, these were non-commercial, long-playing seven-inch singles. It's, um, it's, it's indicative of an emerging culture. Uh, Warner's also got in on the act by uh, issuing an extended version of uh, Calhoun's Dance, Dance, Dance on a 10-inch format, uh, and this was at 33 and a third um, RPM. So, I mean, we been talking for a little while so why don't we just have a listen to that Calhoun dance 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 Um, so that was, you know, we're edging, we're, we're still edging towards a 12-inch format. This was ed- ed- issued on, the Calhoun was on a 10-inch format. Um, and then finally we get to the point where we have the release of the first non-commercial um, 12-inch single. Uh, and this is uh, Bobby Moore's Call Me Your Anything Man, uh, which was released by Scepter. What do you mean it was non-commercial? It means non-commercial. Oh, good question. So non-commercial means it wasn't for sale in the stores. Okay. So this was the this was the bizarre. Uh, this was the somewhat bizarre uh, trick. I don't, maybe trick is the wrong word. It probably is, uh, but I'll stick with it for now. This was the bizarre trick the record companies kind of, you know, tried to pull in getting into this territory. The idea that they had was that they would release long versions that the DJs could play, that the dancers would go out and dance, hear these long versions, and would really like the record. And then they would go to the record store, but they wouldn't be available commercially. Uh-huh. For the them right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now we know whose side you're on. <laughs> 
Finally, yeah. Anyway, so that was it. This they, so the the music industry was pretty determined to stick to its kind of existing format, which was to make its money by selling seven inch singles that would then help promote an album. And it was when they sold the album that they'd really, you know, uh, see the money. So this in. Bobby Moore, the, the Bobby Moore album that was going out to club DJs or radio DJs or both, just club as far as I'm okay. aware. I don't think because the other thing is radio DJs generally speaking didn't like playing long records. Um, you know, they were. No, no, well, lots of commercial radio stations had a prohibition on it. Yeah. I mean, I should have mentioned earlier, actually, in that history of long tracks, like when 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 the Beatles released Hey Jude, like as a long track, as an EP, a seven inch extended play, like a one song, it was seen as this huge issue, this huge thing. It was like a ch- challenge, like, would the BBC allow, you know, their rule to be broken for how long a commercial pop record could could be on the radio and in the end the beatles were seen as having one like you could not play the beatles single so they played hey jude but yeah it was really it was see it, i mean it's kind of because it's because i'm talking about the bbc here because that was an issue it wasn't only a commercial i mean commercial radio in america especially you know, they had all kinds of issues around format because you could you had to play adverts in between records and record you couldn't have too much music without ads on but the bbc also had this sort of gatekeeping thing whereby well basically on radio one that you could only you you know you could only play what was in the top 40s and you had to sort of follow the rules of commercial radio um and they sort of they stuck to that for decades in some sense and so yeah length and and so it remained an issue for people getting a track longer than three and a half minutes played like on BBC commercial radio, it remained an issue for decades. Like it was hard to get it done because there was this sort of idea that you just couldn't do it. And it was, it was almost like it, you know, it was pop music getting above itself. You know, if it, you know, if you wanted to be on radio, you would have to be on radio three if you wanted to be longer than four minutes. So, I mean, you know, the, the discourse around uh, the rhetoric around uh, the 12 inch single starts to pick up uh, with, with this release. Um, Billboard, uh, the music industry kind of magazine, reported uh, Scepter Records is launching a policy of servicing discos with 12-inch 45s to keep the recording level at a max at a maximum as often as possible. Uh, and then it goes on. According to Stanley Greenberg of the label Scepter, uh, sorry, according to Stanley Greenberg of the label Scepter has found that to produce a single of more than five minutes in length, the recording level requires lowering. Um, with the new larger singles, the problem is hopefully remedied. Um, so it wasn't, I don't think it was a particularly kind of incredible record, really. Um, it's kind of sounds a bit like the George, George McRae, uh, rock my baby. Um, but the format is a, is a big, is a major breakthrough. And as, and Vince Aletti reported in his disco file column, that this track runs to just over six minutes uh, and it's going to be shipped to DJs on special 12 inch records at 33 and a third to give it its best hottest sound. Something other record companies have been talking about doing for the disco market, but the scepter is the first to carry out. So that was a really big moment. I mean, just to carry it because Tom is, is, is just very major in this whole period and he's kind of carrying things forward, you know, almost single handedly uh, and is remarkably prolific. Um, and just to kind of just um, go through a, a couple more maybe of his of his key key mixes from this period, which are, have their own kind of interesting stories uh, associated with them. I think at Tom's next record, in as much as it's 
it's easy to form a chronology of all of this is uh, BT Express, do it till you're satisfied. First of all, the, the group were known as the, I think, the Brothers Trucking or something. And somehow or other in the process of this rec- this whole recording, it, they became BT Express. That was maybe sounded a bit, bit kind of better for an urban kind of dance market. I'm not too sure. But initially, this this record, Do It Till You're Satisfied, um, started out as a three-minute record. And by the time Tom had finished it, uh, it, it lasted for five and a half minutes. And again, it became clear that it wasn't going to be easy to put this onto a seven-inch uh, seven single uh, because uh, the low-end frequencies would end up being kind of cramped. Um, I mean, in this particular case, I don't think it was even released as a 12-inch, but it was another important uh, remix uh, if we're also talking about the rise of remix culture in association with the 12-inch. Uh, to get it onto the 7-inch format, um, Tom killed the bass drum uh, to a dull thud and raised up the hi-hats um, just to kind of, because the, the, bass, the bass frequencies take up more space than the treble frequencies. Um, but the key thing with this anyway is that Tom remembers uh, that the groove absolutely hated it. Uh, and he, he sort of told me, they said that it wasn't the way they recorded it, and that it was that it was unnatural. They were particularly upset about the way I used the organ. So we're getting into the territory here, and it's going to get a lot more intense than this. Of you know the musicians, and in some cases, sometimes the songwriters as well, and certainly producers, feeling that they wanted a record to sound one particular way, and that they were they were professionals of what they were doing, and that they. Um, they, you know, had every right to to dictate the final sound of any record. And then, you know, you had figures such as Tom Moulton coming along who didn't have such a clear background uh, in the recording studio, but started to kind of, you know, transform these, transform and, you know, turn inside out sometimes these recordings in order to make them better suited for the dance floor. Um and uh, often to the chagrin and to the upset of um, the musicians and the producers and the songwriters, but this is the the direction that music is starts to move in very rapidly around the, the middle of the nineteen seventies. I mean, there's 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 another mix that's again, it's I don't think it, it necessarily started its life out as a twelve inch even, but it was a kind of important mix. I should tr- look this up actually, but South Shore Commission certainly eventually came out as a twelve inch. Uh, this is South Shore Commission's Free Man, uh, which was another moment where sort of Tom Tom Walton ended up kind of doing a kind of significant remix. As uh, a bunny uh, started out as a Bunny Sigler production for Wand. Um, and um, Tom Walton didn't really like the original and felt it was way too fast. So in this particular mix, one of the main things he did was to slow down the tempo, and he slowed it down to such an extent that the um, the sexual negotiations on the record, which were between the you know the two vocalists, one guy and one woman, Frank McCurry and Cheryl Henry, uh, were slowed down sufficiently that Cheryl Hen- Henry's voice deepened to the point where she could have been mistaken for being a man. And given that the song was titled Free Man, it sort of became this kind of you know understood to be a kind of a song about gay liberation potentially. Um, it wasn't that at all. And Tom Moulton, who identifies as a gay man, says that it's complete nonsense that it was uh, written in that way. But it's another it's another example of the way that adjusting these records to suit the dance floor um, sometimes had quite a big impact. You know, not just on their kind of you know just not just on the instrumentation, but even on how what the vocals sounded like. You come by nightly by day. Well, if I can't have it all, you 
this this what we have is the emerging kind of culture of kind of remix remixing really um and you know tom tom you know he told me i started making drastic changes right from the beginning people called me the doctor they would bring me their sick record and i would fix it um they all thought i was crazy in terms of the way i changed everything around um so the process that's that emerged here uh, is that you know tom would take you know start off by studying a recording at home um, then he would take it into the studio and ask for certain tracks to be taken out. And when those tracks were taken out, he said he could then hear what's hidden. Um, this became a kind of an important, you know, one of the most important approaches to kind of the, to remix culture is to kind of listen out for things that, you know, you couldn't necessarily hear in the seven inch mix or an album or an album mix of a particular a single. But when you studied the multi-tracks, when you got into the multi-tracks, you could start to hear more things. Although the actual the actual access to kind of multi-track recording on commercial records, I think, didn't in the end come until... No, I mean, it must have actually. Yeah, no, Tom was kind of actually working with the multi-tracks, wasn't he? He said, I mean, Tom was very big on leaving the vocals alone. This was very important to him, but he would almost always uh, change the instrumentation, um, and he said that if an engineer um, said that Tom Moulton was asking them to do something that was impossible, uh, his reply would be, well, how can we create that illusion? So again, it's about kind of stretching out the kind of the um, sonic possibilities of, of the recording studio. Um, I mean, just we'll, we'll come back to this later on and maybe in a different series but you know this this kind of you know brian eno um gave this kind of famous uh renowned talk at the kitchen center i'm pretty sure it was in 1979 uh which is called the studio is a as a um as it is a recording as a recording tool i think or is it as a recording instrument but anyway it was the idea yeah this must have been as an instrument um the idea that the studio itself is a place of invention, that you know the studio no longer aims to just reproduce the sound of musicians playing live, which was the original purpose of the studio, but actually becomes this place which, of course, during the kind of heyday of, you know, the rise of the great producers during the 1960s, demonstrated the studio became this place where sound can be completely reinvented. I mean, we've already talked about Sgt. Pepper's, and that was a, a classic album in this regard of doing things in the studio that you couldn't straightforwardly uh, rep- reproduce if you were in a live performance situation. So Tom is is throwing himself into into this culture in which the studio becomes a place of reinvention. In this case, for the kind of the purposes of people who want to kind of DJs who want to then play these this music um, to their to their dancers. Um, I mean, one other thing just to throw in is that um, you know w- we had already got to the point. Uh, you know, through figures such as Barry White and the Love Unlimited Orchestra, through lineups such as MFSB uh, coming out of Philadelphia International, uh, in which, you know, the orchestra had been somewhat um, put back into dance music or the sound that was, was around this time is coming to be known as disco. Um, but, you know, Tom Moulton's approach was to kind of basically take, instead of introducing the orchestra into dance music, he tried to take dance music into what he saw as being a kind of orchestral or symphonic directions. Uh, he, he, he said, he, he told me, I always wanted to make songs sound like a suite. Each record would go through different movements to produce a mini musical masterpiece. 
So I think this also taps into what you were saying at the beginning of the of the episode, Jen, when you said that you know there was a kind of seriousness to this work. You know, the the pop realm was, um, which somewhat remained the pop realm. You know, up to the you know for for much for you know much of the music industry up to the late nineteen sixties, all of a sudden was kind of being seen as something you know that's a, a place of kind of much more serious kind of expansive creativity. And that's what Tom Moulton was really doing through the remix. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, I think we're done for today. I think we're going to do another episode covering the rest of this topic, aren't we? Excellent. Yeah. How do how did we know that this was likely to happen? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, that's great. Good. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, uh, thank you. And uh, we'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you.